Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honoring to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's episode, we're discussing the recently resolved PSAC strike in Ottawa and the ongoing screenwriter strike in Hollywood, and the questions the, these cases raise about the so-called right to strike, the role of modern trade unions, and how tight labor markets may be affecting the power dynamics between employers and workers. Then we'll wrap up our conversation with the unusual case of the Florida Panthers banning Canadian residents for, from buying tickets for their upcoming home games against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Amanda, thanks for joining me. Great to see you. Uh, we're speaking two days into the strike on the part of the Writers Guild of America, which has led to the cancellation of late night talk shows, Saturday Night Live, and possibly other comedy and drama series. It comes on the heels of the conclusion of a 12-day strike of federal public servants in Canada, which was one of the largest in the country's history. These two cases are obviously different in certain ways, but it does lead to basic questions about the so-called right to strike. Uh, what's your thoughts, Amanda? How do you think about these major labor actions in particular and the role of strikes in general? Yeah, I mean, uh, we, and we should caution, of course, we all hope that the tentative agreement between the feds and PSAC uh, is uh, is ratified. There is one, as we know, subsector union inside PSAC um, that is saying they won't, uh, they won't sign on. So let's asterisk that. We hope that this is over. <laughs> the, the economy can't really afford for it to go on too long. Um, you know, I have over time, I've kind of evolved my view on this because on the one hand, you can think of activities where striking is terrible. Uh, we do not want ambulance drivers to go on strike. Um, and for most of us, when it happens, you know, teachers, uh, baggage handlers at the airport, it's maximum inconvenience. And of course, that is the point. Uh, if, it, if it didn't inconvenience all of us, it wouldn't work. So then you have to go, okay, well, fine. The, the point is to be inconvenient. Why do they get to do that? Um, and, and you go to, is there still a massive imbalance in the power? You know, the point of a union is to uh, is to address the fact that the individual worker doesn't have the power, the ability to negotiate um, properly on their own behalf. Is that still true? Uh, and I guess, you know, you can make the case that in some places and certainly in a big bureaucracy, you can make the case. Now, there's I we could spend hours on what unions do. Uh, and I'm sure you have thoughts um, to kind of degrade the quality of work or the way we think about workers or uh, meritocracies. But in this case, I would say, I, I don't know if, would you agree? It's kind of a necessary evil. I mean, until we actually have, not everybody is a superstar who can negotiate a contract on their own behalf and walk if it doesn't work out. Um, a lot of people do need someone else speaking for them. And a strike is kind of like the top line of that. Yeah, at the risk of uh, a, a 
just agreeing with you in principle, I, I think there is something to that, that the ability to withdraw one's labor um, is fundamental to that um, dynamic between workers and employers. Where I'm, I, I have some reservation, Amanda, is um, that the so-called right to strike is a relatively new one. When the Charter of Rights and Freedoms was, um, was codified in 1982, um, the freedom of association was pretty narrowly construed, and it was only a 2015 Supreme Court decision which effectively established uh, the right to strike. And I'm, I'm kind of inclined to agree with Justice Rothstein and, and Wagner, who wrote the dissent in that case, um, um, that it was a mistake for the court to intrude in uh, what was at that point a kind of legislative balance between public interest and the interest of workers and and employers. And so I think we're we're bound to see more strikes moving forward, um, given this Supreme Court decision and and the consequences, as you say, for um, basic public services, to say nothing of of in important economic um um, parts of our economy um, could be significant. I think that's right. Um, and I guess uh, on the one hand, you know, I there have been recent examples where governments have moved um, to, you know, to uh, anti-strike legislation to, to mandate back to work legislation. Uh, let's go to the writer strike, actually, because it gets us to that this evolving part of the economy. Um, now the writers have been striking for a while, and I, you know, I I happen to remember vividly uh, the the I want to say it was ninety eight ninety nine, but it was sort of the first time yes. uh, there was a big Hollywood writer strike, and as we all know, the consequence of that was the Bachelor uh, reality TV <laughs> was born. So if you need evidence of the evils that can be wrought by strikes, there it is, folks, uh, and it'll happen again, right? We'll get more bad TV, uh, scriptless TV, uh, because of, uh, of this strike, but we, there is a massive imbalance right now. I mean, our favorite programs, I have some, and I wait, you know, breathlessly for the next uh, season to come depend on talented people who it, it appears don't have a lot of clout, which is amazing, right? Cause what is a show without a writer? They're apparently underpaid. Uh, apparently some of the safeguards around, Kind of how many people will collaborate together and whether they get residuals from the the, the shows streaming has changed all of that um, in the same way that we now have this debate about whether an uber driver is an employee or not um, so i do think we kind of need to find a way to empower people uh and maybe strikes isn't the answer but then i would say what is the answer how do we empower all these gig workers and now we're including people like writers and soon maybe journalists right once you lose the power it's gone for good Oh, just a ton of insight there, Amanda. Um, as you say, our our expectations around uh, workplace standards and compensation and all the rest is trying to catch up with these big economic changes occurring in our society, including the rise of so-called uh, platform-based workers. It seems to me, though, that in that context, unions also need to kind of reconceptualize um, their purpose and functions. Mm. Um, you know, it's worth noting for listeners and viewers that at this point, private sector union density in Canada is something like 15%. Um, it has declined precipitously over the past few decades. And uh, in that context, it seems to me it, it's up to unions to effectively make the case for their ongoing relevance. And in that vein, I wrote last February for The Hub about a new deal between the UFCW and Uber, uh, what's called a company union deal, where whereby the workers would have access to union functions and services, but just not 
collective bargaining, it, it effectively brought 100,000 new members into the union. And it seems for me anyway, like an alternative model that could be the future of unions. Um, the question, of course, is if they're prepared to abandon the kind of adversarial model and identify these new and different ways to represent workers. What, what do you think? Can unions reform themselves for the modern era? Well, I hope they can. I mean, I think we would agree they're going to have to, uh, certainly in the private sector, because they have lost um, inroads. I don't know if they've lost relevance, but they've lost certainly the lost representation. Uh, a question for you, and I don't know the answer to this, but if you can you know, cite dissenting Supreme Court justices, I feel <laughs> like you may have the answer to this. Uh, and that is, uh, in that agreement with Uber, does the RAND formula apply? In other words, once Uber agreed to let them in the door, does every Uber employee have to join the union? Because that's always stuck in my cry. I hate the, the fact that if you work in a union shop, you have to be in the union. No, it's a great, a great question. I think the short answer is sort of in the sense that um, it's, it's a voluntary whether uh, Uber drivers choose to avail themselves of the benefits and support of the union and the costs associated of the union providing those services is borne directly by the by the by Uber in this particular case. So it's a relationship between Uber and the union um, for the union to essentially extend its services to Uber drivers um, if they want it if they want it, but it involved USCW, conceding that it wasn't going to pursue the the goal of trying to uh, of trying to establish collective bargaining so it it had to put some water in its wine but it increased its membership by 100,000 in one deal uh, mm -hmm. which in an era of declining union representation is massive uh yes and so I, as i say i think the question for union leaders across the country are they prepared to effectively live with some of these new and different models that may look a bit different than it has in the past um, but as you said earlier, we kind of all are, aren't we? Um, yeah. um, given that the economy looks and and feels so 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 much different. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, what it, one of the pieces of this that's so interesting, uh, of course, is we uh, we may all agree that if somebody is going to you know drive a car for us or deliver our food for us, um, they should be paid a living wage. Uh, the gap, of course, is are we willing to spend more on those things? Because yes, at the yes. moment, of course, it is the service provider. And it, it appears I hadn't realized the extent to which streaming had kind of changed the uh, negotiating power and sort of the dynamics. Anybody can be a writer anywhere in the world uh, for, for these shows. So you and the good news for humanity, if you want to look at the optimism piece of it, is talent is ubiquitous and you get to access the entire globe. And that's amazing. Uh, the bad news is, of course, people lose their power and they get paid less and less uh, for the work they're doing. And something does have to, I mean, let's agree that while we believe that, you know, markets can can ultimately settle these things, we're all in a, a you know, a barter process for our, our skills in exchange for something else. Uh, it, it, there, is bit, there is a bit of dislocation here and people aren't being paid enough. If you're, you know, if you're not being paid enough to live, then that's not enough. Um, and I think, you know, that's simplistic, but I think we can all agree fundamentally that we want people to be able to have a decent living. So I don't know, is it the union that should do that? Do companies need to step up? Do governments need to do more? I hate to introduce the concept of a minimum wage, but, uh, you know, where what is the lever you pull to say, there's a lot of profit out there, folks, and a lot of new stuff and people should participate in it. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. 
Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Yeah, you know, I would point to um, some policy innovation coming out of the Ontario government on these issues. Uh, Labor Interestingly, Minister, right? Yeah, yeah, Labor Minister Monty McNaughton. I, you know, I happen to think he's probably the most interesting conservative politician in the country these days. He's trying to apply his conservative principles about, as you say, the role of markets and choice and and economic freedom and all the rest um, to a set of issues for which there's not an obvious kind of small C conservative or market oriented uh, response. Um, and so they've been advancing these pieces of legislation and, and regulatory policy, including on on uh, platform based workers that I kind of get the sense is going to be come uh, the norm uh, across the country. Um, but let me put something to you. You mentioned um, that there are these issues going on in the market, um, but an area where the market isn't sort of part of the part of the dynamic is in the public sector. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, something we've written and talked a lot about at the Hub in the past several months is the growing divergence in the experience and perspective between public yeah. and private sector workers. Um, we even saw during the Peace Act strike last month that the union and his members effectively conceded that they were probably offside um, public opinion in this new era of uh, different uh, forms of, of work arrangements. I, I wonder how long taxpayers are going to be prepared to provide and sustain disproportionate work benefits in the public sector. What are you hearing in the business community, Amanda, about increasing government employment in recent years and the the gap when it comes to health and dental benefits, pensions, job security, and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's a big issue. Um, and I think, uh, honestly, you were the first person uh, in the hub that I saw identifying uh, the extent to which hiring uh, in and post-pandemic was public sector hiring. I think people were shocked by the data. They still are when I trot out your numbers. They they can't believe that that's the case. Um, and the piece of it, actually, that I think we need to concern ourselves most with is less the living wage and the job security because uh, those are good things, um, you know, that people should be paid well and and you know and not fear uh, firing. Now, do we need more flexibility on that? Will government have to innovate around how it keeps and loses people? I think so. But the pension is the one I think that will be our existential problem, right? Because yes. we are headed, uh, and we and we just this the demographic problem. Now maybe immigration is going to help, but the demographic problem to me, Sean, is one that we all like to just whistle past. Like we, <laughs> this has been going on for twenty years. We see it coming. It's still coming. And what we've done is, of course, loaded it with this extra layer of half of us are going to be looked after. And half of us are not, and that's going to be, I, I think, a real problem. Um, and I say things like, you know, 
maybe pensions will have to be changed and clawed back, which is, you know, that's a third rail if you've ever heard one, right? That you have a bargain with somebody, but it isn't what it appeared. But there's some precedent for that, right? When companies run into hard times, they sometimes have to change the deal. Will public sector pensions be as generous as they promise? I don't know. I don't know how the math works out on that. Um, but either way, it's going to be a big political problem that we have to face. I think that's right. Um, you know, we've talked on uh, the Hub Roundtable about the huge gap between defined the propensity for defined benefit pension plans in the public sector uh, versus the private sector, where defined benefit pension plans have kind of gone the way of the dodo bird. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I do think there's something unsustainable there. It is worth observing that. Um, in recent years, we've seen some government agencies, not the core public service, but kind of arm's length agencies move to a defined contribution model. And and I think you're right that we'll probably see more and more of that um, moving forward because, you know, Bill Robson at the C.D. Howe Institute and others have just pointed out um, the significant liability that uh, public sector pensions represent for governments and, and, and taxpayers. Um, and, yep. uh, you know, in a world in which people are working multiple jobs to make ends meet, I don't know how long they're going to be prepared to send their tax dollars to Ottawa for defined benefit pension plans. It's good if you can get it, um, but but Great. most of us don't have it these days. I, I just want to uh, raise one other issue in the context of, of this conversation before we get to the most important subject of the, of the <laughs> week, which is the, uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs and Florida Panthers playoff series. Uh, and But that is recent... Uh, data from uh, a report by the Globe and Mail that shows that non-unionized workers have actually experienced larger wage gains than unionized workers over the past five years. Um, right. And that speaks to something we talked about last time we were together, and that is the role of in which uh, the role of tight labor markets and the impact that a changing dynamic with respect to supply and demand may have for the power and ba power balance that we, we started this conversation with. You want to just Reflect a bit on yeah. that. And, I mean, I think it's it's really important actually to remember those things because, uh, of course, there's much more flexibility in the private sector. And we've seen this. I've been intrigued uh, at the extent to which we have much more real-time pricing this time mm -hmm. around than in previous inflationary periods, for instance. So we're shocked at the grocery store, but it happens a lot faster. Now, we want to see it happen on the way down uh, as quickly, but we should be able to see, we're not quite at a real-time pay rail. Uh, we've been talking about that for a while in Canada, but we, we should be at a place where there's much more flexibility. And so now we have this tight labor market, the private sector has had to respond in some areas, we should, we should note, there's obviously huge swaths where there's not a lot of worker power still. Um, but one thing that I think, I, I wish we would talk more about, and I actually, maybe you know what the kind of policy reason is, but we don't, is in the private sector, um, as with collective agreements, you do often have these contracts that lock in your annual accelerator, so 2% a year or whatever it is, um, I don't know why that doesn't just actually adjust to inflation and do a real cost of living um, increase. Why all contracts aren't that way because for many people over the last 15 years, they got paid less every year because they didn't have a cost of living increase. However small inflation was, it still existed. And uh, I don't know why we don't bring that kind of thinking back. The only thing I'd say in the private sector is they can afford it. <laughs> we have had one of the most extraordinary expansions of profit margin beginning in the 1990s, interrupted, of course, by uh, a financial crisis, interrupted by some modest recessions. 
but a profit expansion that we've never seen the likes of. And so I would say most companies actually have the extra cash. It doesn't have to go back to investors. It can go to employees and everybody will still be fine. Yeah, uh, well said. Yeah, so we'll continue to talk about this issue because I think it's one of these secular trends that is going to kind of shape uh, economic outcomes uh, in the coming years. And uh, I would okay. just say in parentheses, one of the most exciting opportunities is to pull people off the sidelines, people who've been marginalized in the labor force. I'm thinking indigenous people, persons with yes. disabilities, you know, an issue that they've been that that come back to Monty McNaughton that he's been working on is those with um, who've, who've interacted with the criminal justice system. And, yes. Um, yes. So th this is um, this is a before we leave Monty McNaughton, I just want to say really quickly, one of the things I like best about um, them putting the P back in a progressive conservative is the that it it surprises people. And I, I'd love when uh, anybody in public office can actually kind of upend any of the tropes uh, any you know, and just say, actually, you know what, when it makes sense, we will work with unions. Uh, and I, 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 it doesn't matter which party's doing it. I don't really care. I just like that people can remember these things are complex. Nothing's black and white. And there's always middle ground to be found. And I think this is I think you're right. The Ontario government is finding it. And it's really refreshing. Here's a subject, though, for which there's no middle ground, and that is the announcement on the part of the Florida Panthers um, that, that the team is refusing to sell tickets to playoff home games uh, against the Toronto Maple Leafs to Canadian residents. What should we make of this, Amanda? Is this a new form of economic nationalism? I don't. I, the thing I find most shocking about this story, and there's a lot that's shocking about it, is that the, people aren't more outraged. I've, I've heard a lot of fans saying, yeah, they don't want too many of us in the stands. What if it were a different group? Insert group here. And you would be horrified at that kind of exclusionary tactic on ticket sales. Um, there's another layer to it that I find fascinating. That's that Ticketmaster went along with it. Uh, we can all hate Ticketmaster these days, whether you're a T-Swift fan or a, 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 or a Leafs fan. But I don't know why this is allowed. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's anti-fan. Uh, and, you know, a lot of Canadians obviously live down there and they'll find a way to get there and good for them go and cheer the heck out of it. But uh, I do. I don't. Did Were you not shocked and outraged? And, and then I was more shocked and outraged that people weren't more shocked and outraged. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I, this is a, a kind of a form of identity politics I can get behind, Amanda. The, the <laughs> adding Toronto Maple Leafs fans to the list of persecuted groups. Uh, uh, Which, let's face it, it's a very woebegone group. The best <laughs> uh, well, maybe that's a good uh, a, a good cue to, to wrap up our conversation. We're, we're having this conversation on uh on May 4th, uh, game two is is tonight. I know I'll be watching. Uh, I suspect yeah. a lot of our listeners and, and viewers will, and hopefully the outcome is is better than the last one. Um, but this conversation it was as, as good or better than the last one we had a couple of weeks ago. And I look forward to catching up again, Amanda, uh, in a couple of weeks. Same, it's great to chat. Thank you for listening to In Conversation with Amanda Lang, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a review and rating. You can also access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada, or visit our website at www.thehub.ca. 
I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atter-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Gletch and David Matta. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. <laughs>